Good morning, friends. Gift Girl's Faith is back for its second season at long last. We were a bit in hibernation mode because of the pandemic. I hope that all of you are well and weathering it with grace. It's been a difficult season, but we are ready to jump in. Today, it's going to be myself and my husband, Scott Martin. We're going to be discussing the book Toxic Charity by Robert D. Lupton. Part of the reason we're doing this is that it's difficult for Don to be here right now, and we haven't quite figured out the remote recording. And also, for us, part of the joy of doing this is to be able to have a face-to-face conversation about these things, and we're not sure that it would serve us well to try to do it over the telephone. But we're working on all that, and we'll keep you posted about that. But this book, we had already decided would be a great book for us to hear a little bit more of Scott's story. We've referred to him a little bit in some of the other podcasts about the work he's been doing in Haiti over the years. And this book has been foundational for some of the concepts and not only where he started, but what he's learned. So I guess I'd say he read this book in the beginning and it informed him a bit, but he also has learned all of this stuff and more just from feet on the ground trying to make a difference. So what I'm going to do... I'm going to talk about the book a little bit, and then I'm going to get Scott and ask him just to share his story, and I'm going to ask him some questions that are based in concepts that are in this book. So this is uh, Toxic Charity by Robert D. Lupton, and the subtitle is How Churches and Charities Hurt Those They Help and How to Reverse It. So I'd say like the biggest theme that jumped out at me in this book is that we often, as do-gooders or whether it's based um, out of a desire to follow Christ in helping the last, the lost, and the least, or whether it's just uh, our cultural desire to be charitable and to give and help, is the concept that are we doing it to make ourselves feel better or to really make a difference in the lives of other people? Because a lot of us are guilty of what uh, this author would call unexamined generosity So one thing I thought about this book after I read it was discouraging in a way because I have felt good. I have and I have had this experience with others, you know, that you do feel a certain joy when you've done something that you perceive is helping someone else. Um, And so to examine that can be painful if to think that we have inadvertently actually done more harm than good. So these are some of the concepts in this book. He talks a bit about bringing mercy and justice together so that mercy would be the relief work. Justice would be more the development work. You know, how do you actually make a better life for people? Uh, He has some really scathing things to say about the quote-unquote compassion business. Um, And Scott's going to have more to say about that, I'm sure. Um, that oftentimes we don't run our charities the way we would run a business, meaning we don't do any research or development except for in the area of medical, medical research. He does talk about that. And that what if we, what if we had a little bit more research and development in our compassion, uh, giving? And also we don't often have any measurable results. So one of the quotes I have here is due diligence is the cornerstone of wise giving. So how do we do that? That's a whole other question. And that's one of the things this book, it's not for the faint of heart because you can read it and start to just feel so hopeless with how do you help well then that you might get paralyzed and not do anything. So 
I think that it is still important just to jump in and do something where you feel called to. And we'll figure it out. The important thing is to begin and to bravely give of ourselves sacrificially. And it's learning. So I say, like, we jumped into this really naively and we've learned. And so don't let the concepts in this book um, freeze you into doing nothing. So this guy, just to give you a little bit of bit, his background, uh, again, his name is Robert D. Lupton. And you can get this book on Amazon. I'll have a link on our Facebook page, which is Gift Girls Faith. And you can find it on our website, which is giftgirls.blog. So he is a community developer. So what he has done, and this is faith-based for him, he and his wife and family, and then his later his whole org, he has a whole organization they've built. What they do is they they research and they move into. He works primarily in the area of inner city Atlanta, and they will determine a neighborhood to move into, and they move there and they just become neighbors. And first they just. Now, he's many, many years into this, so he knows what he's doing now. So I'm not sure this is how he did it in the beginning, but his advice now is, you know, move in and for the first at least six months, you don't really do anything. You just listen and you get to know people. You build relationships. You find out what people are passionate about. You start to see the natural leaders in the community. You see what the assets are in that community. You build trust. You just be a good neighbor. And then after that point, at some point, you might be able to choose a few areas where you can set up some programming around or actually do a program, whether it's after school tutoring or setting up a co-op grocery store or microfinance loans. Although he has a lot to say about microfinance, which I found fascinating that He talks about how wonderful it is and how incredibly effective it is in countries like Nicaragua and Ecuador and um, Honduras, and but that it doesn't work very well here. And he goes into great detail. It's fascinating about how in in the United States we've had such an erosion of the work ethic that microfinance doesn't work because for microfinance to work, you need three things. He says, "All right, it's on page one twenty." Does microlending work in the United States? And he says a couple paragraphs down, experienced microlending organizations have identified three essential elements for successful microloans. The borrower must have, one, an ingrained work ethic, two, a demonstrated entrepreneurial instinct, and three, a stable support system. Like legs on a three-legged stool, all three must undergird the borrower or the transaction will not stand. In developing countries where people most constantly hustle simply to survive, a work ethic is almost a given. Not so in a culture like the United States, where the welfare system has fostered generations of dependency and has severely eroded the work ethic. Entrepreneurship is also very common in developing countries. Roadside fruit stands, firewood selling, craft making, these and a host of other small unregulated enterprises proliferate along rural roads and urban thoroughfares and are the primary sources of family income that often involve the work of an entire family. Here in poor U.S. communities, legitimate businesses are much harder to operate. We have complex regulations that require proper zoning, business licensing, insurance coverages, accounting systems, IRS. The list is daunting and expensive for the entrepreneur who has a dream of running his or her own business. In our highly competitive economy, where roughly 85% of new businesses fail within the first two years, the survival odds for sustainable inner-city business are even more daunting. 
So you can see like he starts to outline how micro lending just isn't as effective here in the United States. So his work involves urban areas in the United States, but he also has done a lot of work in developing countries, particularly in Central America. So he has a whole wealth of information. So he really approaches this from sort of two sides, I'd say, sort of the faith-based image of God, dignity of each person. You can't help well without authentic relationship, I'd say, is the cornerstone of his sort of faith approach. And the other side would be a business approach, you know, research and development, sustainability. Are you creating in people aspirations for their own businesses, that their own sense of how they can change their own community. So those are sort of the two sides to this book. And it's just filled with also references to other books like Dead Aid by Zambian-born economist Dambisa Moyo in her book of the same title. I'm, I have not bought that book, but now I, I kind of want to. So this is just an incredible resource for anybody that has done any kind of charitable giving, whether it's simply giving to your local food bank or whether you've gotten really down in the trenches and done mission trips. He has a lot to say about mission trips, about how you know maybe we should really start to examine the reality behind them, that yes, they can be valuable. He, call, he said we should call them insight trips because we're going to learn and it can be the beginning of relationships, which every, every kind of healthy aid is dependent on authentic relationships is, is what I would take away from this book. And I think that when you hear Scott's story, you'll hear that loud and clear from his learning and his experience. So overall, I'd say that this was an eye-opening book about some of the assumptions and overlooked realities that, that exist within the charity industry. And that's sort of a big buzzword for him too. The compassion industry, he calls it. So I'd say that overall, he he, com- he talks a lot about the difference between relief and development and how both are necessary and both have a time and a place and how oftentimes as Americans, because we start with compassion, charity starts in the heart. He does have a whole thing about that and how that's a beautiful thing, but that if it doesn't then move to development, it's deeply broken. And he compares the relief part with mercy and the development part with justice. And the, the relief part, the mercy part is usually short, you know, months. He, he just gives this in a framework at one point that I thought was really helpful, that relief is seen in terms of months and that development is seen in terms of years. You cannot have relief without development or it is a broken system and actually causes more harm than good is sort of, I'd say, the big takeaway for me. And so now I am going to go get Scott and we will hear a bit of his story. So stay tuned for just a moment. Okay, we're back and I have Scott here. Hi, hun. Hello. So um, I'm talking about Toxic Charity today, a book you read mm-hmm. and are familiar with a lot of the concepts in this book. But I have a few questions that are based on the themes in this book, but mostly I just wanted to be a jumping off point for you to share a little bit about your experience engaging in Haiti. Mm, okay. So is there anything you want to say to introduce yourself? Well, uh, sure. So my name is Scott and, and uh, you know, our first journey to Haiti started when we were in a leadership conference at our church and you, uh, Bono from YouTube was was talking and he was sort of calling the church out on being absent on HIV AIDS and extreme poverty in general. So we got together after that 
uh, message and and sort of prayed a, a bit of a dangerous prayer, like you know, well, God, sort of show us how we can sort of engage uh, in in this topic and this issue. And that was in 2006, I believe. And sort of long story short, uh, we sort of felt that we were being led to Haiti because a lot of the issues that Bono was talking about, which was a little bit more, you know, sub-Saharan Africa centric, are very present in in Haiti. Yet Haiti is a lot more proximate to uh, where we're located here in the U.S., so we started going down there, and the, and the first one of the first things that we did, and it, it was sort of a, an interesting series of events that led us to this, is there there was a, a Haitian American at our church at the time, and and Pierre said, you know, well if you're going to go to Haiti, you know, you should go and try and change or impact the top, uh, because the people, you know, the poor of the poor aren't really in a position to affect the change. They're they're really sort of more you know, in a position of sort of, you know, what's what's my next meal? What's my, what am I doing for shelter? And those sorts of things. And so that sort of gave us an interesting head tilt about, oh, okay, well, what, what does that look like? And, and how do you go to try and affect change at the top? So our first venture was to bring the international version of the same leadership conference that, you know, had sort of impacted our lives over the years uh, to Haiti. It was the first time it had been brought there. And, you know, we had to cast a little bit of vision around the notion of like a DVD conference. You know, it's like, no, we're not going to have Colin Powell himself come and speak to this group, but it's going to be a pre-recording of him. Uh, but we had to deal with all of the issues around translation, getting it translated into French and that sort of thing. And, and that was a big project. And it started to give us a little bit of an introduction to Haiti. And one of the very interesting things that happened through that process on our very first trip, we met a, a gentleman by the name of Pierre Leger. And Pierre is a very successful business person, and his his business is uh, that of distilling vetiver, and uh, it's actually the root of vetiver. Vetiver is a grass that grows particularly well in Haiti. And the oil that is extracted from the roots is used in fine fragrance. And I believe it's in like 70% of all men's fine fragrance and it's in more and more women's fragrance. And so, you know, he's he's a man uh, with uh, lots of accomplishments and he's, you know, been credited with giving, you know, 20,000 people work in Haiti through farming of the vetiver grass itself and selling the roots to him, which he then in turn distills and and exports globally. And he's one of the world's largest producers and has generated a lot of wealth within the country of Haiti for people who might not have otherwise had an opportunity. And so Pierre gave us a series of lessons about poverty, the systemic nature of poverty. And, and I sort of felt that there were lots of those echoes in toxic charity. Uh, and, and some of the, you know, he, he often would say that, you know, poverty is the biggest business in the world. And he's not a particular fan of charity. He is, is more a fan of what he calls business for development, where, you know, if you are able to find ways to, you know, generate wealth and help others generate wealth, that they can lift themselves out of poverty versus some of the sort of dependency that can be generated by more traditional charitable activities. 
And so it's been a very interesting journey, and, and he's really opened opened our eyes a lot to uh, of how to think about about engaging in extreme poverty. And and one of the things that really has become a truism, or something that I really believe is true, is that aid without relationship is broken. And figuring out not just how to go help people, but to go first have a relationship, build a relationship with the with people, and then work together to help change Haiti. And I think that mind shift is is important not only for uh, the receiver, but is, is equally for the giver. So one of the themes that comes up in the book a lot is relief versus development. So do you want to talk a little bit about what is the right time for relief? What does that look like in terms of some of your interactions there versus development? And when is the time for development? And what, what does that sort of look like in your experience there? So while we often are trying to stay focused on development initiatives, there, there does come certain times where having a relief component is, is appropriate. Due to the lack of environmental controls, a lot of the deforestation, civil engineering uh, deficiencies, when a natural disaster hits, it has an exponential impact on, on Haiti. And as people know that the island of Hispaniola has both the Dominican Republic and on the same island, just on the other half, the western half is Haiti. There might, if a hurricane comes through and there might be, you know, a handful of, of you know, disruptions and some deaths and so forth on the DR side, Haiti often will have a much worse outcome uh, due to some of, you know, with, with some of the lack of civil engineering and, and regulations, the, the drainage is inappropriate. And so this large deluge comes down and it and sweeps people away or their homes or, or all sorts of things uh, with all of the uh, people cutting down the trees uh, for charcoal. Uh, there's much more erosion and, you know, flying over the island, you can see all of the runoff coming out of the rivers uh, into, into the sea. And of course, that's all the valuable topsoil that's being washed away. So, you know, whether uh, we're talking about the earthquake, uh, which, you know, again, there, it was just dreadful. And that was back in 2010. Due to the, you know, building codes, people building in fault areas, which were known to be, you know, dangerous in the event of an earthquake. And some of the, the I'm going to say lack of engineering control, uh, building codes, if you will, of the construction of these buildings, you know, you'd have these four-story buildings that just pancaked down and, and, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of people died in, in an instant. And, and so clearly that, that was a huge emergency. Uh, a, a lesser dramatic was Matthew, um, which happened uh, about five years ago, which was a Category 5 hurricane that ran. It, it basically came between Cuba and and Haiti so right right in through that body of water there and and which is out in the western tip which is very much where I do most of my work in Lakai so you know out of those events we definitely took more of a relief approach and then you know we once sort of that settled down if you will and and more normalized after that we 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 always try and get back to sort of more of the development model another aspect of 
something that would be perhaps seen as slightly more on the relief side of the spectrum is, you know, one of the initiatives that we've been working on is trying to help improve access to healthcare out in the rural countryside of, of the south of Haiti. And in working with the local high schools, you know, working you know, in order to like, you know, leverage some of their space for some mobile clinics and that sort of thing. Again, back to the relationship building, we, we got to know the, the director of that high school and, 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 you know, they asked, is there any way that you might be able to find a way to help us set up a computer lab? And so, you know, this is a school of maybe 500 children that serves Lakai, the greater Lakai area. And the extent of their computer program at the time was one laptop computer that comes in with an instructor Saturday mornings. And and so it was clearly deficient for these days and the era of computing that we're in. And so through some relationships with uh, other organizations that we had come in contact with fairly recently prior to that, where they take in donated corporate computers that are being retired, they wipe them and put on, you know, Ubuntu, a, a very sort of lean operating system with Wikipedia on a stick and uh, Khan Academy and all preloaded so that internet connection is not required, uh, but they are capable of, of accessing the internet if, if that type of service is available. And so we were able to, you know, engage with that group, again, after building a bit of relationship and brought down, you know, 25 laptops, we put in uh, a small solar array and inverter and battery bank uh, to supply that, and, and that's continuing to run to this day. One of the things I love about that story is that you were there in the midst of another project and relationship building, like you said, and they presented to you and your group and your other colleagues that are Haitian what they needed, mm. and then you responded to that. Do you, What would you say for someone that perhaps hasn't examined their charitable giving or is looking for a way to jump in and make a difference? Like, what... What would you say are some first steps for someone like that that wants to engage, whether it's in the United States or whether it's in another country, with how to how to help without hurting? So that's a good question. I think back to the the aid without relationship is broken. I think the most important first step is is to find ways to be present and be with people that are other than you. And and out of that, once relationship is established and trust is built, I think those opportunities will present. I, I think if you're more of somebody that's wanting to financially contribute, then I think that there are – I think the notion of, of this concept of having relationship and making that a little bit more central to the process. I think that's more common now than it was even five or 10 years ago in the, in the charitable space and looking for little signs or cues that those organizations that you're entertaining sponsoring are, are following those types of philosophies. So, you know, I, I, again, I think the first step, if you want to do it yourself, it's really sort of like, getting in and getting engaged and building a relationship with no immediate expectation of being able to quote help. Uh, and then it's, it's not as much going out and doing charitable help, but it's just 
giving a hand to a friend and 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 there uh both dignity is preserved and and I, I think a richer a richer uh experience for both and you have a really unique situation which I should have talked about earlier which is that you're a pilot and so do you want to talk about a little bit about that that passion of yours and how this has ended up allowing you to do this very unique work sure so, yep, I've been flying since I was 16, uh, and uh, I was sort of joked that I, was, I soloed before I got my driver's license, so I had to ride my bike to the airport in order to fly, which always sort of tickled my funny bone. Uh, but when, when we were first thinking about engaging, and, and Haiti started coming on the, as, uh, in the windscreen, if you will, we one of the things that was attractive to me was I'm like, oh, well, I could actually, you know, fly to that and actually be able to engage in that sort of way. And, you know, Haiti, with a lot of their civil engineering challenges, moving around the island can be very difficult. And and so, you know, my friend Pierre lives out in Lakai, which is on the western not tip, but most of the way out of the, the western side of the island. And his that drive, when it's good, is maybe three and a half hours. When it's bad, it's eight hours or totally impassable. But when I fly, I fly into Port-au-Prince to clear into the country, and then it's simply a 30-minute flight thereafter. And so it's really uh, enables much more freedom of movement, and, you know, especially in the context of the of the various disasters, uh, you know, like the earthquake, we were we were down there flying for a couple of weeks after that. Pilots are usually a uh, a careful lot. And and, you know, I like to have multiple layers of of backup and redundancy and, and contingency plans. And so we went down there and, you know, we didn't have any clear knowledge of what exactly we could do in going down there. But I was like, I think we can make a difference. And the worst case scenarios we have, you know, they, we, we had, had some contact through other members of the church with partners in health, and they wanted to get this specialty surgical screws and that sort of thing, because there were lots of uh, orthopedic type injuries uh, out of the earthquake. And I'm like, okay, worst case scenario, we bring down this specialty equipment, and we turn around and we come back if that's all there is. But I suspect that there is is more that we could engage with. And uh, as it turns out, there was a an organization called Go Ministries that uh, when the earthquake happened, they were actually based in the Dominican Republic just across the border. And when the earthquake happened, they went and burned their entire budget for medical and food and rented a hangar on the cargo ramp at Santiago Airport in the Dominican Republic in the hopes that general aviation pilots would kind of hear the word and, you know, go and shuttle the the supplies into Haiti where it was needed most. And it was intense flying. We, we flew from the before the sun came up, timed such that it was just daybreak as we were landing because we were going into these dirt strips or grass strips, which didn't have any lighting or anything like that. So we plan our trips. We depart in the dark and arrive just at daybreak. And our last flight would be taking off at dusk and we'd land at night back in the DR and we'd repeat that. And it was some of the most intense flying that I had ever done 
And, you know, at the time I started to remember reflecting on the fact that, you know, it, it felt sort of as if like my entire passion for flying for all of those years was for that moment. It was, it was really an impactful, it was a sad, but impactful. And, uh, you know, it was a, a meaningful time and made a mark. And part of the impact you had was that all the roads were impassable, the, uh, the port was closed, yeah. Uh, yeah, and so, so like, the cars couldn't get to those outlying areas. Or, so. or the trucks, and tons and tons of supplies was coming into Port-au-Prince, uh, but because of all the earthquake, when the earthquake came and all of the buildings, you know, those four-story buildings that I made reference to earlier, when they collapsed, they, you know, collapsed also into the street, and so therefore... It was literally impossible to move around the city. And so the, there was huge C5 galaxy cargo planes filled with supplies, but it couldn't get out. And, and then and what was compounding some of the challenges is people were fleeing Port-au-Prince and going to these outlying villages or, or cities. And, there, and these cities were, were not, you know, they were sort of kind of holding together on a shoestring relative to the just normal day-to-day medical care capabilities. But you have all of these people with no belongings, injuries, uh, either physical, mental, or both, and, you know, no food, no shelter, flooding into these outlying communities. So it was stressing everything. And, and so, yeah, we, and, you know, again, we had, uh, you know, some of the guys that I was flying with, they were flying into, uh, they were flying some some sh- more short field capable air- airplanes then, and they were flying into this road where they just cut down a couple of the trees along the side of the road so they could land in uh, closer to Kafour. So, yeah, it was it was crazy. So you've said something over the years that is pretty interesting about getting out of your comfort zone. Do you want to talk about that in terms of your sure. engagement in Haiti and just life? Sure. Yeah, some of this comes back to uh, one of our very first trips to Haiti when we were trying to socialize the idea of bringing bringing this leadership summit to Haiti. And we had had a great response in talking with people from church, the, what we call the church community. Uh, we had great opportunities to talk with members of, uh, of the government. And, but we were really trying to find some inroads into the business community. So we had had a contact with uh, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, and it was for a suburb, I believe, of, of Port-au-Prince. And we were just trying and trying and trying, and it, it, was, it was very different because so many of the other times during this trip when we were reaching out to people, the doors were just wide open. But this time, it was seeming as though the doors were very much closed. And, and we're like, well, you know, we've had such a great number of meetings. Why don't we just sit out on the veranda at the hotel that we were staying on, and we can sort of start going through our notes and start coming up with um, next steps and strategies and the like. And as we were doing this, um, we heard some singing, and we looked up, and across the veranda, there was this group of people holding hands, standing around this table, singing "How Great Thou Art." And you know, we're like, you know, Pierre, go, you know, go over and you know, see who those people are. And and it turns out that one morning a month, a group of business leaders get together on that one veranda, on that one patio area and have a prayer meeting about helping business in Haiti. And so we go over there and we're sort of chatting with them. And, and I mentioned to this guy, he was an engineer. And I said, you know, it's really been fascinating. You know, we've, we've seen a lot of miraculous things down here. 
And this is meeting you guys is just one more example of that. And he he said something that really stuck with me. And he said, well, in Haiti, com- uh, miracles are commonplace because life is too difficult to depend on yourself. And it really sort of hit me. You know, I live in the in the U.S. and, you know, we, we have such an amazing set of resources to citizens here. And the fact that, you know, we we almost start to come to not depend on God because we we have so much available to us that we sort of think that it's all it's all us. It's all our doing and we don't need God to be involved. And and so I think that it's important for those that are fortunate enough to live in a place where they really have all that they need and perhaps all that they want, that they figure out ways to go beyond themselves and put themselves in a position where God needs to show up and to help them maintain some sense of desiring and, and need to have God show up in their life. And, and I think that people would, would be blessed by that and would, would have uh, much more uh, fun and adventure in their lives if they were to do that. Do you want to talk about the adventure of the Holy Spirit a little bit? So, yeah. (laughs) On a similar similar note. Right, yeah. Uh, So, you know, I mean, a lot of times, you know, when I I think a lot of people when they say, oh, you know, you go to church, you must be a good person. And and I think that that's – I think that's an inaccurate characterization. And what I like to say is if you're really living out what we're called to do as Christians – it's an adventure of the life of, of a lifetime. And uh, I always sort of jokes like, you know, well, if you start to like pray, pray some of these prayers, you know, you better put on your safety harness because it's going to get a little crazy. And, you know, truly it, it'll, you know, I mean, some of, you know, some of my, you know, fondest ad- adventures and, and experiences and, and challenges and all of that, you know, have been related to just engaging in these ways that are far outside of, you know, what I should be able to do myself. And, and it's really, I think, a function of God showing up and me sort of kind of getting to come along for the ride. Well, thank you so much, honey. Is there anything else you want to say? We're so thankful that you could share a bit of your story and we're so inspired by that. And I would really recommend this book for anyone that's ready for a challenge to examine our giving. Is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is it's it's difficult to engage with these types of activities and to do it well, but it's it's critical that we we not shy away from that challenge and you know be willing to go in and to get exposed and to to you know maybe you're going to feel embarrassed or whatever, but just work through that. Because in the end, God will show up and you will have the adventure of a lifetime. Thank you, honey. Before we finish, I just wanted to read a couple more quotes from the book because that's always fun. On page 129, he has what he calls the oath for compassionate service. So I'll read this list because I think it's pretty great. Number one. Never do for the poor what they have or could have the capacity to do for themselves. Two, limit one-way giving to emergency situations. Three, 
strive to empower the poor through employment, lending, and investing, using grants sparingly to reinforce achievements. Four, subordinate self-interests to the needs of those being served. Five, listen closely to those you seek to help, especially to what is not being said. Unspoken feelings may contain essential clues to effective service. And lastly, above all, do no harm. And the last thing I want to read is at the very end of the book, found on page 190. Perceptions change when servers discover unseen capacities, like the amazing ingenuity required to survive in harsh environments, or the deep faith that depends upon God for daily bread, or the sense of community that sacrificially shares meager resources so that those most vulnerable can survive. Authentic relationships with those in need have a way of correcting the we-will-rescue-you mindset and replacing it with mutual admiration and respect. So that officially sums it up. You can find a link to this book on our website, which is giftgirls.blog, or you can find us on Facebook at Gift Girls Faith. And let us know what you thought of this conversation. We always love to hear from you. And next time, we're going to be discussing The Idolatry of God by um, Pete Rollins. So Don will be with me for that, and we're really excited to discuss this rather provocative book. And it's really interesting and exciting, and I hope that you will all get as much out of it as Don and I did and enjoy the conversation. All right. Have a wonderful day. Bye.